Good morning. So it is a joy to be able to celebrate the Lord's death, his burial, his resurrection together this morning. And it is why we join together. That's why we're here this morning is to celebrate our Lord and Savior and to go grow closer to him as we grow more in our understanding of who he is. Along those lines, I want to ask you a question. If Jesus were to show up in town and stop before you answer, and you don't need to answer out loud, but if Jesus were to show up in town, would you recognize him? Would you recognize Jesus? First off, he's not going to be light-haired, light-skinned, blue-eyed. But what about his character and his teaching? You know, the crowds throughout Scripture marveled at him, but they didn't recognize that he was the promised Messiah, at least not as a whole. Later in his ministry, Jesus even asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Acknowledging the wide range of opinions and thoughts about who he was. In his encounter with Nicodemus in John 5, Jesus notes that as a teacher of the law, Nicodemus, above all, should have understand and recognized that he was from God. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus instructs two disciples concerning much of what has been revealed about him in the Old Testament making it clear that he, Jesus, was the promised Messiah. Matthew's gospel is written so that we would recognize Jesus, that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the promised king who will one day rule over all creation. And I think we're quick to put ourselves in the sandals of Peter, who, when he was asked in, later on in Matthew, said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When the reality is that I think many, especially or perhaps even many Christians, are probably more like the Pharisees or scribes. They know a lot about the Bible. They know a lot about Jesus. But they know little of him. They would struggle to recognize him if they encountered him, if he showed up in town. The religious leaders studied about the Messiah, but they did not know him. I think there's a bit of retraining that we as Christians need to do, even when we come to study our Bibles, which is a good thing. Don't stop studying your Bibles. That's not what I'm saying. But as we come to study our Bibles and to learn about him, there's a retraining we need to do to ensure that we're not just learning about Jesus, but we're actually growing in our nearness, our closeness to him. So going back to that question I asked earlier, would you recognize Jesus if he showed up? Instead of answering yes or no, perhaps answer these questions. How would you recognize him? What is it that would make him recognizable to you? What is it about his teaching? What is it about his ministry? What is it about his character that would make it crystal clear without a shadow of a doubt that this is Jesus Christ? If you're struggling to answer those questions, don't lose heart. Let it motivate you to know Jesus better. His own disciples who spent three years with him struggle with this at times. Let's help spur you on to grow in your familiarity with him so that you can recognize him. This morning, we are going to observe Jesus' authority to forgive sin. And as we observe this authority and this power... We see the lack of faith and the lack of recognition on the part of the religious leaders that did not know who Jesus is. 
As we study this text together this morning, we want it to inform not only our knowledge about Jesus, but create a deeper appreciation and love for Jesus himself, especially in light of what we've celebrated together this morning in communion, as we look at his authority and his power to forgive our sins. And it's not just the forgiveness of sins, it's what comes from a lack of forgiveness of sins that we are saved from, from eternity separated from him, from eternity of pain and suffering and punishment that we rightly deserve because we, in and of ourselves, are at war with a holy God. So if you have not already done so, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. So we look at a text that helps us to create a deeper appreciation and love for Jesus. We're going to begin verse 1 of chapter 9, where we read, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowds saw this, they were all struck. They were fearful and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we come to this text, we desire to give you glory and honor that is due you. May we study this. May we come to an understanding of this. May we rightly see the message that Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, penned so many years ago to help us understand the authority of Christ, the promise of this King, and the great hope that it should give us. Help us to rightly see Jesus Christ. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Matthew, as he's been going throughout, especially in the recent weeks that we've been studying in these past couple of chapters, he's been giving us a panorama, a vista of Jesus' authority. First, in his preaching, we saw that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, followed by his authority over sickness and disease as different persons were coming to him. Those near the point of death, the leper and others. And those were examples of the many that he was healing and caring for. And then we saw his authority over creation a couple of weeks ago as he calms the wind and the seas. And then last week we saw Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm as he cast out the demons and ordered them about. And now as we read this morning, we see Jesus' authority to forgive and remove the guilt of sin itself from a person. Matthew is making a careful argument as he goes through this, as he presents these examples and this history of Jesus Christ. He's demonstrating and carefully building on and showing us this power and this authority of this great king, this promised Messiah. 
first verse of chapter 9 transports us from the shores of Gadara back to the city of Capernaum. That was Jesus' own city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've read the story, if you've listened the past couple weeks, you realize that Jesus' time in Gadara, the land of the Gadarenes, was short-lived. He wasn't even there a full day. He was there a few hours before he acquiesced to the demands of the crowd to climb back into the boat and return to Capernaum. And at first, this might seem like an enormous waste of 24 hours. He'd spent hours traveling through a storm the night before. Now to be rejected by the people of Gadara after just a few hours on land before having to go back where he came from. From man's perspective, what a waste of time. And yet, think about what has happened in those 24 hours. Jesus has used his time to first instruct the disciples in the need for increase of their faith. Secondly, to demonstrate his authority over creation that we've already alluded to. Then his authority over the spiritual realm. And even to commission some of the first Gentile missionaries after exercising the demons from them. It's after having done all of this that Jesus returns to Capernaum. Assuming fair weather this time, as opposed to the storm the night before, he would have likely arrived around evening, meaning he's just really been gone only about 24 hours. Then upon returning to Capernaum, Jesus is quickly surrounded by the very crowds he had temporarily removed himself from. Well now, having set that scene and reminding us that we are in Capernaum, Matthew appears here in verse 2 to actually jump back in time to an earlier couple of events that took place in Capernaum. And we know that because we have the other Gospels of Mark and Luke, which record these in a little more of a linear time frame. Both Mark and Luke list these next two events. We'll look at the first one this morning of healing of the paralytic. is happening before the trip across the lake. Now, once again, there's no contradiction here. Matthew, through the superintending of the Holy Spirit, has arranged his recounting of past events to highlight the increasing scope of Jesus' authority. So he's laid them out in this way. We've all told stories that happened sometime in the past. Maybe you can think of a, a trip you took and a bunch of things that took place during the trip, and you're relating them to someone. You start telling them the different things that took place in the trip, and you don't necessarily do it in a perfectly linear fashion. Maybe you were trying to emphasize the outdoor things you did, so you describe what those were. Even though you had done some of the other indoor things in between those, and you tell those later. It doesn't negate the truthfulness of it at all. It's just a different purpose and emphasis. We came back from a trip to Florida a few weeks ago, and our children were excited to describe what they had done, what they had seen. And depending on which one was talking, you might hear different events at different times, in different orders. And all of them are true and accurate, at least I hope so. They were just relating it from a different perspective and with different emphases based on how excited they were um, or what left the most impression upon them. They might even use the language of and then, not to talk about chronology, but to add in, more, in addition to, here's something else. And there's one additional difference between Matthew's account and that of Mark and Luke. That's that Mark and Luke note that the crowds had closed in so much around Jesus that the paralytic's friends, when they showed up, they had to make a hole in the roof to let their friend down. Now Matthew purposely admits the lowering of the man from the roof. 
Again, not a contradiction. It just shows that Matthew doesn't require this detail for the primary message he wants to highlight for us. So I think it's right for us to stop and ask, and we're cheating a little bit because we're going to jump out of order, if he's admitted that detail because he's trying to drive home a, certain, a specific point, what is the point? What is Matthew wanting us to get from this story? What is it that Matthew wants us to see here? Well, the answer to that question is down in verse 6. So skipping ahead, you note down in verse 6, Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's it. That is the key verse, the key phrase, the key point of this passage. Everything that goes before, everything that follows in these eight verses is centered around proving that Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. So as we look at the story, so you look at what transpires, note how it all works to emphasize this critical point. Returning to verse 2, let's continue to observe the scene that Matthew sets, which highlights this authority of Jesus. First, Jesus, it says, sees their faith in Matthew. Again, Matthew is a little bit briefer in his recounting of this story, so he jumps right to it. He sees their faith. Now, these are not the first persons to come to Jesus for healing. He's been healing and performing miracles for days and weeks now. But there is something unique about these persons coming before him, something unique about their faith and their belief in what he can accomplish. What is Jesus referring to, though, when he says, seeing their faith? I mean, you can't see faith, right? So how do you know someone has faith? Well, faith itself is not seen. Faith is observed and demonstrated through action, right? I mean, that's why Peter says, faith without works is dead. Well, we know from Mark and Luke that these friends had gone to great lengths to make a hole in the roof to lower their friend down into the house where Jesus was. Now, you have to picture this for a moment. I want you to... Do your best to put yourself back into first century Israel. Imagine for a moment that you carefully allocated your time. You showed up early. You knew where Jesus was going to be. You were one of the lucky ones who got into the house that day. You're standing in the house. The crowds begin to gather. It gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. There is standing room only, and even then you're squished up against other persons. It's getting hot, it's getting stuffy. They didn't have nice tall ceilings. But there's no way you're going to miss this. Who knows what Jesus might say or do next, even though it's getting hotter and stuffier by the moment. As you're watching and listening, you feel something fall on your shoulder. You notice a little bit of dirt and debris, you brush it off, and a few seconds later, more falls on your shoulder. This time you look up, wondering where this is this coming from. As you look up, you notice there's a small hole beginning to appear in the ceiling above you. Now, this isn't a tall roof. This hole is only a few inches above your head. Before long, a bit more debris has fallen, perhaps causing you to sneeze or a few persons to sneeze once or twice as the dust is falling. And then the room becomes noticeably brighter as daylight begins to shine in through this hole in the roof. Now, you may be a little bit annoyed at these persons who were determined to get a view because they clearly didn't care enough to show up early like you had. 
They were even willing to ruin a roof to get a better view. You're probably a bit relieved too, though, because now with that hole in the roof, you get some fresh air, so it's a little bit easier to breathe. With the open ceiling, there's a lot more light. It's a less stuffy. But the next thing you notice is the room goes dark again. You look up, and it looks like someone has covered it with something. As you keep looking, you realize it's not a blanket covering. It's a pallet. It's supported by ropes or linens, and it's slowly coming down, and there's a person on it. Now the room goes silent. Jesus is teaching the questions. It's silent as people just watch. This pallet being lowered those few feet directly in front of Jesus. As the person comes into view, that's when you realize, oh, this is the paralytic. You've passed him. You've passed him a dozen times in the streets of Capernaum. You know, you being the generous person you are, have even after a good day of fishing, fishing, donated shekels to him as he begged. You know who this is. However, you're also a little bit annoyed that he's taken up the best seat, but you don't want to show it. I mean, after all, how would you look expressing disapproval or annoyance at a cripple? But before your thoughts can go any further, Jesus speaks. Matthew says that Jesus spoke in response to seeing their faith. This is not the paralytic's faith alone. Well, there are times where Jesus healed on the basis of an individual's faith. Here it says it was because of their faith. That is the collective whole, the friends and the paralytic. If I can do a brief excursion on this, Matthew has provided us here in this example one of the most literal examples of intercession you will find in Scripture. Here are these friends who have by their actions demonstrated their plea and their request for the healing of their paralytic and their, of this paralytic, their friend. Jesus follows this expression of intercession and faith by saying that it was on the basis of their faith, that of the friends, that he will act. What a stark reminder and exhortation to us of the importance of praying for one another and lifting one another up in prayer, just by way of example. Paul himself asked for this many times in his letters. The intercession here of these friends is a reminder of our need to faithfully intercede for one another. Again, this is a parenthetical to the main point, but it's nonetheless important. Notice, too, the evidence of their faith. While faith is an internal work, it is always accompanied by outward expression. The faith of these men was alive, and as a result, Jesus turns to this paralytic and says, Take courage, my son. Take courage. Perhaps there was a nervousness now that he was actually in the presence of Jesus Christ. Remember, his faith is real. It is different. It is distinct from the faith of the others. The others in the crowd, the others who may have come. He understood or he had a better understanding of who it was he was petitioning. Who it was he was in front of. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. His heart was probably beating out of his chest, wondering what would Jesus say next? Is he going to be annoyed with me? And Jesus says, take courage, my son. And then Jesus acts. But he acts contrary to what I'm sure every single person in that room expected at that moment. Even the paralytic, who had been lame for years, 
Jesus says, not your legs are healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. Looking back, it makes sense why Jesus added the gentle and familial statement, my son. Salvation changes the relationship of the sinner to God from enmity to sonship. In addition to that, Jesus here shows the close connection and the source of all human sickness and suffering. Sin. Sin is the source of all sickness and suffering. It's at the root of it. So Jesus identifies the great source of healing that was really needed, even beyond the paralysis. And it was the sin sickness or the soul sickness. As the expert physician, Jesus is not ignoring the man's plight, but is dealing first with the mortal wound before turning attention to the flesh wounds. It's true that God will sometimes inflict sickness as punishment for sin and some sins do lead directly to sickness. There is nothing here in the text to indicate that this paralytic's condition was the result of any specific sin. Rather, it was the consequence of just being a sinner. Being a sinner in a sin-cursed world where sickness and disease run rampant because of sin. Note too the grammar here. It didn't say your sins were forgiven or have been in the past, it says your sins are being forgiven. In this present moment, at this moment, your sins are forgiven. As Jesus is speaking, the sins are forgiven. Now, why is this important? Well, what have we noted over and over and over again in the past few chapters of Matthew? The power of Jesus' words, the authority when he speaks. What was it that calmed the winds and the waves? He spoke. What was it that cast the demons out? He spoke. What was it that healed the centurion's slave? He said, don't even bother coming, Jesus. All you need to do is say the word. Here again, the authority is found in simply Jesus speaking. Something miraculous has happened. And this time, it's his authority and his power to forgive sin that are on display. Now, this expression by Jesus, your sins are forgiven, create quite a stir amongst the crowd. First, it was not at all what they were expecting to hear. Secondly, who is this person who claims to forgive sins? I mean, we've seen him work miracles, signs, and wonders, but who is he to forgive sin? In addition... There's one group of persons who always seem to be present, watching, waiting, looking to pounce. And to say that they were unhappy with what Jesus said would be quite the understatement. And yet if you observe Jesus' interaction with the scribes, the Pharisees, or religious leaders throughout the Gospels, you realize how completely in control Jesus is. He plays these religious leaders like a fiddle. He leaves them speechless. He's playing chess while they're still learning how to play checkers. In verses 3 and 4, we are introduced to these scribes, these religious leaders, as they begin whispering amongst themselves. While verse 4 highlights the internal evil thoughts, I'm inclined to think from the grammar and the setting in verse 3 that they were speaking, quietly whispering first amongst themselves. Part of this, too, is that when Jesus rebukes them, they are now witnesses of one another that 
Jesus does indeed know what we were thinking. There would be no denying that Jesus knew their hearts when they had already whispered those thoughts to one another. Now, blasphemy, what is blasphemy? It's not a term we use daily, probably not even weekly. Well, blasphemy, blasphemy was typically leveled. It was against someone, the charge of blasphemy, who is claiming to say or do something that only God could do, either claiming to be God or claiming to do something that belonged to God alone. What's interesting is that in this, the scribes are completely right. Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43. The scribes are experts in the law. They know these Hebrew scriptures, left, right, and center. They can quote tremendous chunks, if not the entire Pentateuch. Most of them have copied the law by hand, letter by letter. So they would have known what was in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, down in verse 24, we read, You have bought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now watch who it is who wiped out iniquities. In verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Turn one chapter over to chapter 44, verse 21. We see a similar theme. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God alone is the one who can forgive sins, and it's for this reason that sin is ultimately against God alone. The hurt and effect may be felt by persons. We get hurt when somebody sins, often. But that hurt, that pain, that offense, only is a hurt and a pain and offense against us because it is first and foremost a violation against God and His holy standard and who He is. It's for this reason that David writes, if you would, turn to Psalm 51. Take a left in your Bible into the Psalms. You'll come to chapter 51. This is David. And I want you to think about what he says here as I read these verses because this is as he was dealing with the pain, the consequence, the guilt over his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah the Hittite. If anybody has sinned against other persons in this case, David's done it. But look who he first acknowledges that he has sinned against. In verse, beginning in verse 1. You can note the heading there. For the choir director, it's a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. And listen, 
Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Throughout this, David recognizes that his sin, though acted out against other persons, is most seriously an affront to God himself who will judge all deeds and all thoughts. So as we return to Matthew, the scribes have observed correctly. Jesus claiming to forgive sins belongs to what only God can do. They are not wrong on that point. They are exactly right. They've passed that part of the test. Where the scribes go wrong is that they do not recognize who this is. They do not recognize Jesus Christ. They don't see the divinity of Christ. And in this, they demonstrate their unbelief. These masters of these law, the law, these PhDs of the Old Testament and the scriptures don't recognize the Messiah who is right in front of them. This is yet again an important reminder that knowledge of the Bible, knowledge about Jesus, is not enough to save you. Remember what we studied in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus' own words when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That is, the works produced by faith. True faith will always produce fruit. True faith is always followed by works. But these scribes had no such faith. They had an abundance of knowledge, but their faith was lacking. These scribes believed that Jesus, being only a mere man, committed blasphemy by claiming to do God's job. Jesus now turns their thoughts and accusations of blasphemy, though, upside down. In verse 4, where he says, it's not him who is evil, but it's them. Remember, this accusation by Jesus comes on the heels of first having identified the faith of the paralytic and his friends. I mean, what a contrast exists between this group who has showed up with faith in Jesus Christ and this group standing off to the side, thinking evil thoughts, calling Jesus a blasphemer. These are two radically different groups in attendance that day. When Jesus said that they had evil in their hearts, this must have angered and burned the scribes. Who was this man to claim they were in evil in front of these crowds? And yet there must have been a bit of hesitation because he had just revealed at the same time what they were thinking and whispering about. This may be a man, but he's no ordinary man, they may have thought. 
Before they can say another word or respond, Jesus continues in verses 5 and 6 by posing a question, which again, he doesn't allow them to answer, but instead provides the ultimate mic drop moment. Jesus asks, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Notice Jesus doesn't say which is easier to do, but which is easier to say. He's responding to the charge of blasphemy. It's a serious charge based upon what he has said. So he'll use his words, what he says, to now clear himself of these charges and give visible evidence to the invisible healing he's already accomplished in the soul. Now in reality, healing sins is much more difficult than physical healing. However, the healing of sins, at least immediately, cannot be externally or scientifically verified. So it's easier to say with your words that your sins are forgiven, especially if you're a charlatan or one who wants to deceive and no one can check your work or the efficacy of your words. And so Jesus demonstrates that he is no charlatan. He is the son of God and his words are efficacious. Jesus tells the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. The next thing we know, the paralytic does that. Now, this is remarkable because if you have been paralyzed, the muscles would have completely atrophied over that amount of time. Even if he could now move them, there's no way he should be able to get up and walk. Even if he's been healed, there's no way he should be able to walk right now. Much less bend over and go through the physical effort of rolling up his pallet and carrying that added weight with him back to his house. This isn't just take two steps and show everybody I've healed you. This is pick it up, carry it all the way back home. This is miraculous. This is complete and total healing. This isn't the practice of medicine. This is the divine healer. Remember this house was crowded with persons too. So you, you can imagine as the paralytic began to pick up his mat and begin to prepare to walk to the door, it must have been like the Red Sea parting with persons as they cleared a path for him to walk out with jaws dropped, gazing in amazement as he walked right by them out that door. Looking at this interaction, you see that Jesus accepted the scribe's premise that only God can forgive sins. He wholeheartedly agreed with them. He just goes on to prove that he is, in fact, God and can forgive sin by healing the paralytic, doing what they thought would be impossible to verify in their sight. And he leaves the scribe speechless. I mean, if Jesus had really blasphemed, how could he now perform a miracle by God? I mean, it was common knowledge that God does not listen to sinners. In John 9, 31, when the blind man is healed and the religious leaders are wondering, well, who is this person who healed it? He said, you yourselves know he can't be a sinner because God doesn't listen to sinners. He only listens to the righteous. This man is from God. If Jesus had just blasphemed, he could not then heal this man because he would be a sinner. God would not have listened or done this work through a sinner. But then that means if Jesus did not sin by what he had said, if he did not, in fact, blaspheme, and if God alone can forgive sins, then he must, in fact, be who he claims to be, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. 
The logical realities of the situation must have hit those scribes like a ton of bricks. This healing was, has verified in every way imaginable that Jesus is in fact God and has the power to forgive sins. Jesus is clearly claiming by this to be God and leaves the scribes speechless in such a dramatic display. He also, I don't know if you noticed that he went and prodded the scribes a bit more even in how he healed. Notice Jesus used the phrase son of man in that interchange. We looked at that a few weeks ago and noted that this is a reference to the incarnation and the humility of Christ while also proclaiming his divinity and kingship, claiming to be the son of man from Daniel 7. Now, note the irony. In addition to the healing and the miracles and the forgiveness of sin, Jesus has also highlighted that because he didn't blaspheme, that means those who are not calling him God are the ones blaspheming. He has made the scribes the blasphemers against God. He has turned the situation completely upside down. In other words, the scribes themselves have become the blasphemers. Now before we look at the closing, note the instant obedience of that former paralytic, the man who had been paralyzed, I mean, what a wonderful picture this provides of obedience. Get up, pick up your pallet, go home. What does he do? He gets up, he picks up his pallet, and go home. On the surface, it seems so simple. And yet that instant obedience from one who has been physically healed is such a wonderful picture, a necessary picture of the type of obedience that should come from those who have been spiritually healed. of the obedience and the repentance of sins that becomes the defining characteristic of ones who, one who has experienced forgiveness of sins. The desire to obey, the outward expression of obedience, this fruit of faith. It's a reminder to all of us of the fact that if we have been healed, we owe allegiance and obedience to the one who has healed us. Scribes have been so thoroughly thrashed by this miraculous response by Jesus and this interchange that Matthew has no need to even make mention of their response. Instead, he turns to the reaction of the crowds. Notice in verse 8, we see that the crowds were afraid and glorified God. The logical conclusions Jesus had drawn made it crystal clear to the crowd this was God's power and they marveled and they praised God for providing Jesus as his agent. All must be well then, right? Well, this crowd still exposed something. Look what they say in verse 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. It's really the word, they were fearful. And they glorified God who had given such authority to whom? To men. This exposes their limited understanding and the still unbelief of the crowds. This is the crowd whom Jesus desires to withdraw from later when he went across the sea, who continue to misunderstand his work and his ministry. You see, while they may not have the same evil thoughts as the scribes, 
they still, like the scribes, believe this is just a man to whom God has given this authority. They're still missing the reality that Jesus is God incarnate. They've missed the point. Jesus has not granted, has not been granted this power by God. He is God. They did not recognize him, even though he was right in front of them. Where the scribes stood as a reminder that no amount of knowledge can save, here we're reminded that no amount of miracle signs or wonders will transform a sinful heart. Salvation is solely a work of the Holy Spirit, most often accomplished through persons teaching and explaining the message of salvation and the hope of the gospel. This is why efforts focused on healings and miracles, signs and wonders can be so misguided. To think that we can change a person's heart when even the miracles of Jesus did not change these hearts is quite preposterous. It's quite an elevated view of ourselves. If the signs and wonders of Jesus did not change hard hearts, why would I think that I could make that happen? And it brings us back to the crux of the issue. And the, that the primary human dilemma is not physical sickness, physical pain, the need for signs and miracles. And as we've also seen, it's not knowledge. The primary human dilemma is sin. It doesn't mean sickness or physical needs should be ignored, but it means they should be rightly prioritized. We should consider how to provide help and minister to those who are sick and hurting, but we must preach the gospel and the hope of forgiveness from sin while doing it as the primary motivation. Otherwise, we're no better than a paramedic who bandages a bloody knee while their patient is dying from a gunshot. Taking a step back and considering the theme of Matthew, we see again the hope and the future promise of the kingdom of heaven illustrated as we see the connection between the reversal of sickness combined, combined with the removal of sin. It's a picture of the future kingdom where sin will be no more and there will be no sickness, death, or tears. And that exists because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. If you've not experienced this authority of Jesus in your life, if you are still clinging to your sins, if you've not come to the Lord confessing your need for salvation, for healing of your soul sickness, of that which most angers a holy God, which condemns you to hell, don't wait another day, don't wait another minute Turn to the healer who can heal not only the physical body, but can heal your soul. He's demonstrated that he has the power to do it. We know there's something not right with us. We know we are sinners. No matter how hard we try to pretend we are not, we know we are sinners in need of a Savior. 
For those of us that have experienced this wonderful healing, what tremendous hope this gives. What a beautiful picture it paints of that coming glorious day when we pass through the narrow gate into the kingdom of God where sickness and death and sin are no more. See, Jesus provided a glimpse into the kingdom that day. Are you sharing that hope? Are you faithfully helping others to hear and see that hope? Really returning to the question we asked and asking it a little bit differently, what are you doing to help others recognize Jesus Christ and his forgiveness from sin? That's the encouragement. That's one of the takeaways from this text this morning is the question, the exhortation to help others see and savor Jesus Christ, the healer of our soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a poignant reminder this morning of the authority you have to forgive sins. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the work that has been done in so many of our lives where you've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son as you've removed that guilt and that weight of sin. Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to follow the example of the paralytic in that instant obedience. Convict us like you convicted David when we sin, recognizing that first and foremost we have sinned against you. Help us to be quick to confess that. And help that faith manifest itself in confession to others. Help us to be faithful in good deeds. And most importantly, help us to preach the hope and the promise of the kingdom. In your name, amen.